Welcome back. Thanks for joining me. It's Deb Hutton, and I say this every day, but it is my favorite time of the day when I'm hosting The Rush, and that is between 4.30 and 5 when we're joined by our smart speakers. Our Thursday smart speakers, Faye Johnstone, co-owner and executive director of consulting firm Wisdom to Action, Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies and the managing director of Abacus Data, and my friend Scott Reed, CTV political commentator and advisor to a number of prime ministers, premiers, and political leaders. Welcome all to The Rush. Let's start with, I think, one of the top political stories today, and that is that former federal NDP leader Ed Broadbent has passed away at the age of 87. Scott, why don't I start with you on your reflections on the former leader? Well, you know, I'll start with a pl- in a place where most people won't, Deb, uh, and that is you're going to hear about... You know, Ed Broadbent's commitment to social democratic values, to social justice, to equity, um, all that's true. But here's the Ed Broadbent I knew. He was a dedicated partisan, a political animal, somebody who was elbows up and absolutely swung the stick. So when you got into a political fight with Ed Broadbent, you came out with bruises. And that's not an insult. That's a compliment. And I just, you know, from my perspective, the true legacy of Ed Broadbent is that he modernized the new democratic movement. He stitched together the prairie populace. He brought in the union movement that had been there for a long time. And he incorporated the sort of social democratic, social justice activists. And he built that thing into something that had political potency. Um, He didn't succeed in 1988 in the way that the polls suggested he might have, but he made it an electoral threat, the NDP. And uh, I just think in that sense, he built the modern NDP. And, you know, I I don't think that his uh, legacy will soon be forgotten in those circles. Faye Johnstone, reflections on his passing. Uh, You know, I uh, lived in his writing for a good number of years, but only after he'd left elective office. And so I just know that he he's a behemoth. He's a powerhouse Uh, everywhere in progressive politics. His name comes up and almost everyone has a fond story. So uh, I was heartbroken when I heard the news. I was actually on a call with some friends in the labor movement uh, when I got a notification on my phone. Uh, So I didn't have a personal connection to him, but I know uh, his he will be missed and uh, he's left a legacy that he has every right to be proud of. Tim Powers, uh, yeah, I agree with Scott. Um, uh, the word I used earlier was just he was he was so solid and convicted and and consistent was how I thought of him. Yeah, look, best of the old school, Deb, uh, not to speak ill, uh, ill of the passing 87 years of age, old school. For sure. Um, he went hard. Like Scott said, he got the elbows up, but there was a decency to the man. I remember as a young guy doing panels with him when he retired, like, you're in awe of these fellows. And you get on there and, uh, you know, he, he'd beat you up a little bit, but then he'd uh, be so kind and decent to you afterwards. And the other thing I recall about Mr. Broadbent is the love and affection he had for his late wife, Lucille. I remember uh, a number of friends Scott does who worked with Mr. Broadbent and when she died, he was heartbroken. He was a human being as well as a, as a first-class statesman. It's a real loss for Canada. Tim, I'm going to actually stick with you for a moment because as Managing Director of Abacus Data, you have a new poll out today. And that, actually, we have some trouble with your audio, Tim. Maybe I won't stick with you. Maybe I'll go to, I'll go to um, 
uh, Scott, <laughs> for a moment. There's a new poll out from Abacus Data, Scott Reed, that has the Conservatives 17 points above the Liberals 41%, which is up 4% from their last poll last month. Liberals down 3 to 24, NDP down 1 to 18. Um, general reflections, I think the, the one other part of this that uh, I think is interesting is that there is an openness to voting conservative that exceeds 50%, in fact, 54%. But I'll let you take this wherever you want. Well, listen, I've got a very sophisticated analysis. I think this is really bad for the liberals and very good for the conservatives. Uh, I know it's going to shock you. You have to really have been involved in politics for a long, long time to come up with kernels of wisdom of that kind. Um, (laughs) I... We had a rule. I've said this before uh, on the radio and on TV over the years, but we genuinely had a rule when I worked uh, in the Chrétien Martin governments, and that was we couldn't let the Liberal Party, particularly the Liberal Party in government, drop below 30 percent. That when you got below 30 percent, when you got below one and three voters, that the the logic of the Liberal Party starts to fall apart because New Democrats start to say, well, why do we need to surrender our vote in order to stop the Conservatives? We can just actually vote with the NDP. Liberals are disaffected. Conservatives get animated. The Liberal Party cannot afford to live for long under 30 percent. They're at 24 percent. This is a four alarm fire. And all through December, Liberals were telling themselves at the federal level they were feeling better, that they thought they were being more pugnacious, that they thought they were making traction. There was an abacus poll that showed that they gained five points. They're like, see, it's working. It's mattering. It doesn't matter. None of that stuff is like it's all just in the bubble talk. They've got to radically re-engineer their approach or they are going to get flushed. This thing is a flashing red light. Do not ignore it. Tim Powers, I actually thought there's there's a ton of positive tidbits for the conservatives in this. So consistent with what uh, Scott is saying about the liberals. I mean, there's there's the the voting pool, which is good news over 50 percent. There's the obvious ballot question number itself. But you guys also tested at Abacus for the first time in a long time uh, motivation. And the conservative voters are more motivated than other voters. So I saw a ton of really positive recognizing it's a snapshot potential though trends for the conservatives i I think you have to call a lot of it a trend deb i mean we've had this double digit lead in the the abacus numbers for six months i believe now this is the biggest one we've had i tell you what i found to be the most interesting piece in there and you've identified some that are also equally interesting Uh, that's probably as personal approval rating right yeah Mm -hmm. um we had him in the negative 30s at one point, I think, a year ago. He's plus six. He's had a Justin Trudeau. Um, I mean, liberals never thought that would happen. Probably many conservatives, me included, never thought that would happen. There's a bunch of reasons why he is where he is, because the other side is falling as it has. They haven't put the gloves on him. But nonetheless, if you're the conservatives, you have to be pleased with this. You just now have to figure out, you know, how do you define a manageable lead and protect it? Uh, over the next year and a half. Well, or how long, right? Uh, and just yeah. for our listeners, what Tim's referring to is is polls will take the sort of positive impressions versus the negative impressions and do the math. And if you have a negative, uh, net negative approval rating as a leader, then you're not in great shape. And if you have a net positive, you're feeling good. And, and Polyevs, as Tim just said, is plus six. 
Faye, uh, your thoughts generally on where we're at in the polls, politically, federally? Well, you know, the, the liberals are struggling and they've been struggling for a long while. Uh, I still remember uh, I came of age to a certain extent uh, as Trudeau was coming into power. Uh, and I remember all of the, the hope and happiness undertone to his message. Uh, and I think he's just sputtered in the last two years. And I would agree, I never expected, you know, watching politics uh, uh, in my late teens, I, you know, Pierre Polyev was the attack dog. He was just this guy who was always angry. And it's shocking to me to see how effective his rebrand has been, but also a rebrand that doesn't lose that energy and that that fuel uh, that you see in all of his his public appearances. And so I'm surprised that he's managed to find the right tone, um, but impressed because there is clearly a desire for change, and there's a lot of anger in the in in our. Uh, voting base, I think, right now, and he's channeling it in a great way, and he's caught the Liberals on the back foot again, 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 and again. Tim, just quickly, because I don't have enough time to start a new topic, do you guys, um, do you pull for Time for Change? Do you pull for Right Track, Ron Track, any of those? Yeah, uh, and, and just above, uh, that's consistently been at about 80%, which, as you know, is a staggering It is, number, yeah. Yeah, Any, sorry. Anything south of 60 is usually seen as uh, the end is near, but 80 is crazy, crazy high. Yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to catch off guard there, but I just uh, had just a few seconds left, so thought I'd ask. Faye Johnstone, Tim Powers, Scott Reed, they will continue with me after the break. Lots more to discuss, including a bit of a shot at Mr. Reed this morning on a John Moore panel. Stay tuned for that. You're listening to Deb Hutton. This is The Rush on News Talk 1010. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining me. It's Deb Hutton in the chair this afternoon. And my smart speakers today are Faye Johnstone, co-owner and executive director of consulting firm Wisdom to Action, Tim Powers, chairman of Summa Strategies and the managing director of Abacus Data, and Scott Reed, CTV political commentator and advisor to a number of prime ministers, premiers, and political leaders. And I might add the topic of one of John Moore's roundtables this morning discussing yesterday's budget proposal brought forward by Budget Chief Shelley Carroll. Here is Shelley Carroll on Scott Reed. Well, just run one reply, and, and really this is taking issue uh, not with the, my panelists, but but with Scott Reed earlier. This is not a case of uh, the mayor woke up after she was elected and, and found the city having a problem. Uh, we heard her talking about this in her, uh, in her campaign. Uh, I think it's part of the reason that she did run, because the problems that exist with our fiscal formula that really started with amalgamation were there when she was a councillor, and she could see that they were still there. And she heard John Tory speaking to them ably and very well. Every city manager for the last four speaking to this problem and speaking to other governments about it. Every mayor, really, including Rob Ford, has been saying there's something wrong here. Scott Reed, response? Like, whatever. Listen, here's the reality of it. I'm, my criticisms, you know, we can have a debate about the policy choice. My criticisms are of a political strategy. And let's not be precious. They are pursuing a very deliberate, very calculated, and I think very, very disastrous political strategy. Their strategy is this. We are going to, one, 
raise taxes really high. She can talk about what the mayor said in the last campaign. She never once said she was going to increase taxes by 16.5%. She said modest. So this is a surprise. But their whole play is, oh, well, this is the staff budget. We'll set it really high. It's not our fault. It's an inevitable consequence of failure on the part of John Tory, Rob Ford, David Miller, all those administrations in the past. And it's the failure of Justin Trudeau. They need to give us more money or not only will we raise taxes by 10.5%, we'll raise them by 16.5%. Then a month from now, the mayor will come forward and say, I've listened to people, people are anxious. So instead of it being a 10.5% in tax increase, it'll be a 9% tax increase. And they think that they will win. They won't. 16.5% is going to be stenciled on her administration's forehead. They have made a giant mistake they have forgotten the fundamental rule of politics that Joe Clark learned in 1979, which is that people who champion huge tax increases do not get to blame others, do not get to get re rewarded and reelected. They've made a terrible miscalculation, and that's my criticism. And I'm sorry, Shelley, but it ain't going to work what you're doing. It's going to fail. So, Faye, I'm not going to ask you to defend either Scott Reed or Shelley Carroll, but I'll ask you for your general comments on the budget that we had out yesterday, plus the new piece today, which is uh, Myron Demke, who is the police chief here in the city of Toronto, who's joining me at 520, by the way, saying that there are unacceptable risks being proposed with the budget for Toronto's police that was uh, part of yesterday's unveiling $12 million less than the police services board had already approved in the fall. Your thoughts, Faye? You know, I think municipalities are really in a bind. They don't have revenue sources. And especially in the case of Toronto, um, they are dealing with a budget nightmare and shortfall after shortfall. And it does often feel, even from outside of Toronto, like Toronto is on its own dealing with that, despite being the biggest city. I do have to say the comment from the uh, police made me laugh because I feel like every single time they get any pushback on their proposed increases, they have a lot of feelings and they say it's time for it's, you know, it's an age of crisis and the, we won't be able to do what we need to do. Uh, and yet everyone else who sounds that same alarm, who rings that same bell, if it's, you know, housing, if it's shelters, if it's community services, uh, that falls on deaf ears. And so I think uh, police need to learn how to work with a smaller budget because their budget can't grow year after year when I haven't seen the data showing their effective use of those funds to create safer cities in practice beyond their rhetoric about it. Tim Powers, I'll let you take it wherever you want. Well, I, I love the reference to Joe Clark because as Scott knows, the guy who brought in that budget was my late cousin, John Crosby. He wore mucklucks when he did it. Maybe if they had been incorporated yesterday, the stink wouldn't have been so bad, but uh, <laughs> like I'm with Scott. This is that's a crazy high increase. Olivia Chow is trying to do what the Atlantic Liberal Caucus did, which is blackmail the prime minister into supporting uh, her request because uh, the liberals need Toronto if they're going to turn those abacus polling numbers around. I don't think she's going to get the same result. I don't mind her trying. But boy, oh boy, I would hate to be a taxpayer in Toronto right now, where the options are, as Scott said, maybe nine and a half percent or fifteen and a half percent. I mean, that, that, that's crazy. It, you're making Toronto more unlivable. And the final point I'd make, Deb, is 
I get why she wants to raise the money. I get she wants to improve services. But show me any government municipally or provincially or federally who in three or four years has been able to take that money and make such significant service delivery changes that they're rewarded for that and the tax increase is forgotten about. Ain't going to happen. Let's stay with Toronto for a bit, Uh, Scott. The police chief uh, said this morning, I think for many of us, long overdue for others, very disturbing that they are going to bar anti-Israel protests from happening uh, sort of in your neighborhood and mine at Avenue Road and the 401. Your thoughts on that announcement? Thank God. Long overdue. I mean, it's ridiculous. It is. And forget the politics of it and what you think about Israel and Hamas, although I have a strong view on that. But it's a pure safety issue. I was barreling down the 401 trying to get off of a, on Avenue Road um, a, a couple of weeks ago when one of these protests was occurring. And all of a sudden, there was nowhere to go in the turn lane. There was no exit to get off on. And I couldn't get back into, you know, the main collector's lane. Like, I almost crashed into somebody. So it's ridiculous. Plus they're taunting the community by doing it there. So shut it down. Long overdue. Thank goodness. Faye Johnstone, your thoughts on this news. I feel like I don't know Toronto enough uh, and I'm not enough of a driver to comment on the location or the safety risk. Um, But I do, I I struggle with this as well. uh, Or I I struggle with this just in general. I, I think uh, we need to figure out, you know, where is the right places to protest? What is the fair policy that's applicable to all situations? Um, but I have to claim, play that I don't live in Toronto. And I don't know if there's another bridge in another neighborhood that they could do this at. But I would also remind us all that protests are meant to disrupt us. Uh, they're meant to make life a little bit more difficult. So we pay attention to those things that those protesters are making a fuss about. Uh, and that's an important a pillar of a healthy society in my books. So I am going to say that while not taking a stance because I don't know the city as well as I could. <laughs> well, I mean, just for context, Faye, um, this is a, a bridge that basically when you go across the 401, you are entering a neighborhood that is largely considered to be a Jewish neighborhood. And it is really one of the very few ways to get into that neighborhood, hence the the location of the protest. I want to thank you, Faye Johnstone, co-owner, executive director of consulting firm Wisdom to Action. Tim Powers, Chairman of Sumas Strategies and Managing Director of Abacus Data, and Scott Reed, CTV Political Commentator and Advisor to Everyone. Thank you all for joining me this afternoon. Coming up after the news at 5, we're going to walk through some other big issues of the day and then be joined by Toronto Police Chief Myron Demke. Stay tuned.